You want to navigate on your device or open your Bible to the book of Judges in the Old Testament as we start a new series. The book of Judges, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, a hero will rise. We're in chapter 1 this morning. We're going to do all 36 verses. Don't sigh, I can hear that. You don't want to discourage me or I'll go longer. The topic... Against the backdrop of defeat, God gives a brief glimpse of the heroes He will raise up to deliver His people. The title of our message, Did You Ever Know That You're God's Hero? At least I didn't sing it. Let's pray. Lord, it's really hard to believe that I would be your hero, that these ladies here would be your heroine and... Uh, the other men, your heroes as well. But um, I believe, Lord, that's what you're going to tell us today. It's because of the ministry of the indwelling presence and the baptizing presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I pray, Lord, that we would bear that in mind as we go through the book of Judges, as we see uh, not just the defeats, Lord, but the massive successes that you had in raising up individuals to deliver your people. Be our teacher, be our guide. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, Amen. It's called the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They're the series of superhero films based on characters that appear in Marvel Comics. Started in 2008 with Iron Man, and in that time, Marvel Studios has produced 14 films. There are 12 films more in various stages of production. That doesn't count the X-Men franchise or the DC Comics extended universe of films. It doesn't count the Lego Batman movie, which is awesome, by the way. You should go see it. We love our superheroes. They're mostly ordinary humans and flawed at that. But they've been granted superpowers and they rise to the occasion to save the day. The book of Judges tells the stories of a series of God's heroes and one heroine. They are ordinary, flawed human beings, but they arise with God's empowering to do extraordinary feats in order to save God's people. The judge most people are familiar with would be Samson. He was always doing some superhuman feat of strength. One time, he removed the gates of Gaza, and he carried them almost 40 miles. Estimates of the weight of those gates by conservative archaeologists It's a pretty broad range, but at either end, it's fantastic. Minimum of 5,000 pounds, maximum of 20,000 pounds. Those of you who thought that Samson was down at CrossFit working out all the time and was some kind of a buff dude, no, he was an average-looking guy, probably scrawny, and uh, empowered to do supernatural feats by God. And that's why the Philistines looked at him and said, where does he get his strength. It wasn't his muscles. It was his God. It's too bad God doesn't raise up heroes and heroines today. Or does he? His Holy Spirit lives in you, does he not? The very Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. One paraphrase of Romans 8.11 even reads, it stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, he'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus bringing you alive to himself. Like all superheroes, we have an arch enemy. He's the devil, who the Bible calls the god of this world. He describes, uh, the Bible describes him as going about like a beast, seeking whom he may devour. 
Nevertheless, we are told if we resist him, he will flee from us. You are God's hero. You are God's heroine. You can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens you. As we embark on this study, keep your hero status in mind. Now, this morning, I'll organize my thoughts about chapter 1 around two points. Number one, you're God's hero and your weakness is to disbelieve him. Number two, you're God's hero and your superpower is to believe him. Let's take a look at our weakness, our unbelief, or our disbelief, rather, at the beginning of the book. Uh, let me list the weakness. You tell me the superhero it affects. We'll start with the easy one, kryptonite. Okay. The color yellow. Green Lantern fans. We had Green Lantern fans in this section, yes, first service too. This must be the Green Lantern section over here. Noise pollution. Who said Daredevil? You're right. Because he's blind and he depends on his other senses. So I don't understand why his arch enemy isn't Boombox. I just made that up. It's pretty good. Anyway. <laughs> I know, you're scribbling. Prayer requests, that's what he said to do. (laughs) What about us? What are our weaknesses? Well, we don't have time to go through that. I mean, each of us would have a long list of potential and actual weaknesses. One that is common to all of us turns out to be disbelief. Now, I don't mean by that to suggest we're not saved. I'm talking about not taking God fully at His word. We can disbelieve God in times of blessing and in times of buffeting. The Israelites in chapter 1 of Judges provide example after example for us of what disbelief looks and acts like. So rather than define it, let's just look at them and we'll see it manifested. Verse 1, Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Scholars like Samuel for the author of the book of Judges. It tells the mostly sordid story of the history of Israel after Joshua's death, leading up to the establishing of a monarchy when Samuel anoints Saul as Israel's first king. Warren Wiersbe describes the period by saying, Instead of exhibiting spiritual fervor, Israel sank into apathy. Instead of obeying the Lord, the people moved into apostasy. And instead of the nation enjoying law and order, the land was filled with anarchy. Another commentator described it using the following word play, rebellion, retribution, repentance, restoration, then rest, followed by rebellion again, and it all starts over again. Perhaps the book is best summed up in the last verse, verse uh, 25 of chapter 21, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Whenever Israel repented and cried out to the Lord, he would raise up a judge, a hero, to deliver them. We're going to see 12 of them as we work through the book. Now Joshua had led the Israelites to a victory that secured their control of the land. But after they were in the land, each tribe had to go into their particular inheritance and finish off the enemy, the Canaanites living there. The children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? So far, so good, they're seeking the Lord. Verse 2, And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. 
God indicated, probably through the ministry of the high priest, that the tribe of Judah should go. And he promised to deliver the land into his hand. Verse 3, So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. In verse 2, did you hear God mention Simeon? No. Now, this may have seemed like a good idea, but it was not God's idea. There are a lot of good ideas that are not God's idea. For one thing, God is all about showing that it's not by might nor by power, but by His Spirit that He saves and delivers. Judah hooking up with Simeon gives you a picture more of a natural strength, of a physical strength, of a strength in numbers. And we're prone to believe that there is strength in numbers. If all the Christians would get together, then we could accomplish something. As if God is powerless to accomplish anything without all the Christians. I'm not saying all Christians shouldn't get together, that we shouldn't pray and, and seek the Lord. But in your life and in the life of the church and in the Bible, oftentimes God is made powerful in our weaknesses. Samson, that's why it's so important that you never see Samson as a muscle-bound uh, freak, but just as a natural person like yourself who can do unusual things because of the Spirit of God upon him. And so our first look at disbelief reminds us it is subtle. God is your strength, but you add some simian to his leading, thus diminishing him in the process. Strength doesn't come by padding the numbers, but in simple faith. Verse 4, Then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. Right now might be a good time to address a criticism some folks level at God. How can he order the wholesale killing of the inhabitants of Canaan? How can he tell his people, go into the land and kill all the inhabitants, men, women, and children? Well, first of all, before God ordered their execution, he called for their eviction. He would have been content to see them leave. The Canaanites knew for at least 400 years that the Israelites would one day come to claim their land. Not the Canaanites' land. It was the Israelites' land by grant from God. They were living there as squatters. And 400 years passed before the nation of Israel actually came into possession of the land. So they had plenty of time to leave. Second, they could have gotten saved. In their first foray into the land against Jericho, you see Rahab and her family saved and spared and they became part of the children of God. God was not willing that any should perish, but they must either evacuate or convert. Choosing to stay was a conscious decision to defy the wrath of God against them. The Canaanites were heinous sinners. They were immoral, practicing all manner of sexual perversion as well as child sacrifice. If anyone deserved judgment and destruction, it was the Canaanites. But leading up to it, God in his long-suffering waited and gave them every opportunity. Even when they were at the gates, they still could have gotten saved and they refused. And so we have to change the narrative, as it were. As people criticize God for cruelty, uh, <laughs> if anything, he was overly long-suffering in their situation. Judah and Simeon were victorious, 
I say sort of, because they won the battle, but they did it their way, not God's. And here's an example in verses 5 through 7. They found Adonai Bezek in Bezek, and they fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Then Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. If you think this was a good idea, it wasn't. This is terrible, and it was wrong. God never told the children of Israel to maim their enemies and to make sport out of them. This was an entirely pagan custom that uh, Judah and Simeon borrowed. Adonai Bezek got a false picture of God from the maiming. Essentially, he said, this is what I, a follower of Baal, did to conquered kings. And this is what Judah, a follower of God, does to conquered kings. And so, the God of Israel is no different than the God of Baal. And and the God of these pagan nations. And it was a total misrepresentation of the judgment of God, of the wrath of God, and those kinds of things. Disbelief manifested itself here as misrepresenting God. It's important how we represent God to others. Our God is like no other, approachable and full of mercy and grace. And we shouldn't be embarrassed to talk about the grace of God and the long-suffering of God, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and those sorts of things. We don't want God to look like the gods of the heathen and the gods of the pagans. And we want to come across with a proper view of who Jesus Christ is. That's what saves. Verse 8, Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem, and they took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains in the south and in the lowland. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjath Arba. And they killed Shishai, Ahimon, and Talmai. So for a time, Judah went about God's business exactly as they should have, and God delivered their enemies one by one into their hand. This tells us that we can experience blessings even though we have only been partially obedient. Judah was only partially obedient, and they added some strange things to the mix, but God continued to bless them. Times of blessing can be a little bit dangerous for us because we can think that because nothing incredibly bad is happening that some of the small bad things that I'm doing are actually being overlooked by God. The little things that I'm doing in corners of my life that nobody sees, the closet activities. And, you know, God is just so gracious. He continues to bless and in His mercy give us space and time to repent. And we confuse His blessing with His uh, approval. And so be careful during those times. Skip down to verse 16. We'll come back to verse 11. Verse 16, now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went and they dwelt among the people. Earlier, Moses had invited the Kenites to join the Israelites because of his relationship to them by marriage. Although they joined the Israelites, they didn't join in the conquest. They just lived among the Canaanites. Eventually, they became Canaanized and were indistinguishable from those who rejected God. Some people in the church are in disbelief because they're not believers. They're not saved. 
They might volunteer, they might seem to be used by God, but it's not God's empowering, and they don't belong to God. In our church, in every church, there are always non-believers. And there are sometimes non-believers who think that they're saved because they have not been told yet or figured out yet that it's not by works of righteousness, but by the Spirit of God, by faith in Jesus Christ. Every now and then I'll encounter somebody from a church that says, I went to that church for 20 years. I was a deacon in that church. I was served on the board. And then one day I heard the gospel. And my ears and my heart were open and I became a Christian. And so it's, there's no, um, there should be no fear in us individually challenging ourselves and others and saying, hey, am I a Christian? How do I know that I'm saved? When did I get saved? Who or what am I trusting for my salvation? I don't want to be living in disbelief because I'm a non-believer. And if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, it's time to get on board. Verse 17, Judah went with his brother Simeon and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zeph. Uh, Zephoth and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Horma. Some of the this is just kind of a personal aside, but some of these names I just start into them, and whatever comes out comes out. People come up afterwards and they say, "Man, you're really good at that pronunciation." I said, "No, I'm actually not. You, I just stumble through it." So, and that that was a tough one. Uh, anyway, verse eighteen. Also, Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory. Ekron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. Could not means did not when they could have. Don't you think God knew about the chariots of iron back in verse 2 when he promised to deliver their enemies into their hand? God didn't say, you're going to be able to uh, defeat all of your enemies except those guys down there with the iron chariots. That's a little bit too hard for me. It was a little bit too hard for Judah when they were disbelieving God, but it wasn't too hard for the Lord. And many times our enemies will increase in strength, not decrease, because the Lord wants to constantly prove himself. Remember, it's in our weaknesses that he's made strong. There's, there's nothing exciting about 900 chariots going against 900 chariots. Then it's just a matter of skill and, and who trained the most. But when you're an army on foot and you go against 900 chariots and you get the victory, who gets the, uh, the blessing? God does. Later on in the book, we'll find the heroine Deborah, or Deborah, some people pronounce her name, uh, gives orders to Barak to go against an army of 900 iron chariots and God defeats them easily. And so, uh, disbelief... Uh, here is manifested in just flat-out disobedience. They just didn't go against this army. They might have attributed some of, or much of their own uh, success, rather, to their own strength and strategies, because now faced with a seemingly superior foe, they did not trust God. And as a footnote, we say that superiority of any uh, perceived kind is not an issue when you believe in God. There, there's nothing superior to the strength of God, to the power of God. There's no disease, there's no dilemma, there's no disaster, there's no D word of any other kind. There's nothing that is too hard for God. Now I know sometimes we don't feel that because we're in the, the problem and it's raging all around us and we, we're not actually being delivered. 
But God's got it in hand. We just have to wait. I love, it's the greatest example to me of this, I use it all the time, is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament, Daniel's friends. They won't bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol. He gets madder and madder until he says, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace, I'm going to burn you. And they say, we don't care what you do to us, our God will deliver us. And if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow to your idol, so there's nothing you can do. One way or the other, they were going to be delivered by God either miraculously through the fire as they were or miraculously in the fire, perishing but still defiant against the God of this world and his minions. And so uh, we win either way. It's just that when we're in the midst of the battle and it seems like we're being defeated, it's hard to go on believing God. And that's what's so important about this book and teachings like this. You need to believe God. Verse 20, they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said, and then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. Caleb, you remember him probably from the book of Joshua. He's an old man, a super old guy, but he conquered a difficult mountain region by expelling three giants. He's a shining example here dropped in for us of not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of God and by simply believing God. Now, the chapter ends with a rapid series of failures. Verse 21, But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Maybe the Benjamites thought they could convert the Jebusites. That didn't happen. But instead, the Jebusites perverted the Benjamites. An example today might be a Christian knowingly marrying a non-believer. Don't do it. Disbelief is manifested here by compromise rather than conquest. Children of Israel were to conquer, but instead they decided to compromise. Verse 22. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Please, show us the entrance to the city, and we will show you mercy. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. They let the man and his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a city, and called its name Luz, which is its name to this day. If the Lord was with them, why the need for spies? Well, you say Joshua sent spies to Jericho, and that turned out okay. But let's compare the stories. The spies sent to Jericho preached the gospel, and Rahab and her family were gloriously saved and folded into the children of Israel. The spies sent to Bethel made a deal with this man. Then they sent him on his way so that he could establish a brand new godless city among the Hittites. Seems like a fail. Besides, who needs to find the entrance into the city? God destroyed Jericho miraculously not depending on blueprints to discover its weakness. This wasn't like the two towers in the Lord of the Rings where there was that little tunnel that they found and they could blow it up and exploit the weakness. God said, no, hey, here's the strategy. March around Jericho the way I tell you to do it and be quiet when, you're, when I tell you to be quiet and then blow trumpets when I tell you to blow trumpets and watch the walls fall down. You don't need blueprints. They didn't need to find the entrance to this city. This is all natural thinking. And disbelief here is manifested by trusting in natural means and methods and in an impatience with waiting upon God for further details. When Joshua was going to go against Jericho, he went out and surveyed the city, but not as a spy, but just to pray. And the captain of the Lord's host, Jesus Christ, came 
and gave him his strategy. Verse 27, however, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. It came to pass when Israel was strong, they put the Canaanites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out. The Canaanites were more determined to stay there than the tribe of Manasseh was determined to drive them out. It was just easier to live alongside of them rather than to fight against them. No one said the Christian life was going to be easy. Plenty of godly voices in Scripture have told us it's going to be very hard, that it's a battle. Thus, we must remain determined to believe God in the face of opposition. Nothing fosters disbelief quite so much as troubles and suffering and makes us want to take a step back and just kind of peacefully coexist. The tribute idea sounded good, but it wasn't God's word or his will. Disbelief here adds to the word of God and thereby undermines his will from being accomplished. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, so the Canaanites dwell in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalahol. See, I just made that completely up. So the Canaanite, that sounds almost Hawaiian. So I did a little Hawaiian dance there. Yeah, crazy. Dancing at Calvary Chapel. Blog, blog, blog. Pastor breaks into dance. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. This tribute strategy started to catch on in a very bad way. When I manifest disbelief by disobedience, it encourages others to do the same. I might seem successful, but that's not the point. It doesn't matter how many other churches are doing it, if it is wrong. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or Alab, Akshib, So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Now the wording here makes it sound like the Canaanites were doing the Asherites a favor by letting them dwell among them. That's a total reversal of what God had intended. And so disbelief manifested here as surrender to the surrounding culture and its values. Compromise always leads ultimately to a full surrender. You can't compromise with the world and not think that you're going to surrender to its morals and values at some point. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to them. Commentators say these places were centers of Canaanite worship. The Canaanites were all too happy to corrupt the Israelites by introducing them to Baal worship. We manifest disbelief when we borrow methods of worship and doing church from false cultic sources. Sadly, to make worship fresh, churches often do this. In recent years, churches have been uh, promoting prayer labyrinths or prayer mazes where they set up a, a labyrinth maze and you start, there's a beginning and an end, and you go through the maze and certain points, you, there's stations where there's an object or there's a scripture or something and you stay there and you meditate until you feel led to go to the next uh, station. It's it's all the rage. I mean, we're not doing it here. But a a lot of Christians are into this and they all say the same thing. Oh, man, when I can't, I'm so afraid. You did so much for my prayer life. You know, it does a lot for your prayer life. God tearing the veil in half when Jesus Christ gave up his spirit and said it is finished. 
so that now I don't go through a maze or a labyrinth to talk to God. I go directly into the presence of God because of Jesus Christ. What a stupid thing to do. I'm sorry, it, it annoys me to no end. Anytime you take away the freedom we have in Jesus Christ, it should get your hackles up a little bit. So, deconstruct your mazes and just go straight into the presence of God. Verse 34, And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down into the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Heres, in Ajalon, and in Shalbim. Yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. Now the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akrabim, from Salah and upwards. The tribe of Dan was defeated. It says they were forced into the mountains. When Joshua defeated, uh, was defeated at Ai, after Jericho, they were defeated at Ai, he sought the Lord. God revealed to him there was sin in their camp. Achan had taken some of the spoil against the express will of God. The Danites were defeated, but they simply accepted their plight. They didn't want to do the hard work necessary to get right with God. Disbelief here manifested itself as just playing out laziness. You're a hero. You're a heroine. You have to believe it against what seemed to be overwhelming odds and God's unexplained delays. You've been promised victory, but it seems you are defeated. The enemy has come to rob and kill and steal. The very ground beneath you seems to be quicksand. It might be hard to believe, but disbelief is only going to make things worse. You should adopt as your theme the song by Journey, Don't Stop Believing. You're going to have that in your head all afternoon now. But you know what? It's better than, Did you ever know that you're my hero? I don't know what it is about that song that makes me want to hurl. I just can't take it. And so let's, let's do the Journey song instead. Local boy makes good. So maybe we need an example of what the Israelites should have done. We saw part of that with Caleb, but returning to verse 11 now, we'll see a little more to it. Decades earlier, the Israelites had stood on the verge of entering the promised land at Kadesh Barnea. Moses sent 12 men in to spy out the land. Ten of the spies exaggerated the dangers and difficulties. Joshua and Caleb gave a good report and urged the people to press into the land believing that God would give them the victory, but the people uh, wouldn't do it. In fact, at one point they wanted to kill Moses and Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb survived the 40-year wandering in the desert while the rest of the Israelites of that generation died. And now Caleb wants the land he had spied out and was promised. In one sense, it was the worst land because it was the most difficult to conquer. It was mountainous terrain, which always put an attacker at a disadvantage. The cities were heavily fortified. And it was there that a concentration of giants lived. Nine-foot-tall, ten-foot-tall giants. The very giants that had so filled the ten spies and the Israelites with fear 45 years earlier. We read that Caleb conquered the land, but there's something more we're told now in verses 11 through 15. Verse 11 from there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was for, uh, formerly Kirjath Sefer. Then Caleb said, Whoever attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksa as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So he gave him his daughter Aksa as wife. Now this seems a bit strange at first and weird, but it's really basic parenting. Dads, don't you want most for your daughters 
to marry a solid, on-fire, committed Christian. You should if you don't. I mean, but really, in your heart of hearts, as a believer, that's what you want the most because that's where success in marriage and in life is going to come from. In our generation, it's kind of hard to figure out who's an on-fire, excited, committed Christian. I mean, because we, we don't have that much to go on. But it was pretty easy in Caleb's day. He said, hey, one of you guys wants to do what God says and go against the enemy and defeat him in the power and strength of God, you can marry my daughter. And I'm sure Axa was on board with this because she wanted to have a solid husband. And Othniel said, hey, I'm going right now. It reminds me of the young David, 15, 16 years old, goes to visit his brothers and he sees Goliath defying the armies of God. He says, what gives, guys? Any one of us can take this guy down. I can do it because it's not by might or by power. It's by the Spirit of God. And so that's the kind of guy that Caleb wanted to marry his daughter. In chapter 3 of Judges, we're going to see Othniel raised up as a judge himself, as a hero to deliver God's people. And so this episode in chapter 1 tells us that Caleb was doing some pre-judge training. Now, verse 14, now it happened when Aksa came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you wish? So she said to him, give me a blessing, since you have given me the land in the south, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. On a practical level, a field with no water was useless, so she wanted the water rights. The fact that he gave her more indicated he wanted them to ask for the field and for the water rights, so why not just give it to them from the start? Why not spell it out? Well, I think Caleb was a good example to them and to us, a spiritual example. If they wanted anything from their dad, all they had to do was ask, and he would give them not just what they asked for, but a lot more. It sounds like our Heavenly Father, Luke chapter 11, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? If he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Your Heavenly Father wants to give you the good gift of the Holy Spirit in abundance. God the Holy Spirit is compared to springs of water. When Jesus said in John 7, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. In the Luke passage, Jesus was talking about believers who have already been born again, asking for more of the Holy Spirit in their lives. In John, we're promised the influence and presence of the Spirit will be like rivers of living water flowing into and through and out from us. We have water rights. We need only believe that as we ask, we receive every good and spiritual resource we need to conquer. The heroes and the heroine of the book of Judges will be empowered by God the Holy Spirit. He will temporarily come upon them and they will deliver God's people in that power. He's in us permanently, and He's also promised to continually come upon us if we simply ask and then believe by faith. Your superpower is to believe God. Believe Him no matter how dark things might seem right now, no matter how overwhelming your enemy. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, dark time in their life. 
I, Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, in the midst of thousands of people, am going to throw you into a burning, fiery furnace and you're going to die. That's a dark moment. They didn't get together and huddle and say, hey, how can we compromise our way out of this? How can we talk our way out of this? What are we going to... They just stood there in the power of God and they said, you know what, there's nothing you can do to us. Nothing you can do to us. You can threaten us. You can throw us in there. And we're either going to survive it or we're going to die, but we're going to do it believing God. We're not going to cower and think, oh, where's God's promises to us? Where's Daniel when you need him? If only Daniel were here, we'd know what to do. No, they just, they believe God. And in their case, they were delivered through it. Hey, don't think it wasn't Harry being in a fiery furnace. I mean, you know, even though Jesus was in there with them, they're in the thing. You're in some kind of trial. Jesus is in there with you. You know that. Believe God. Let the Holy Spirit come upon you. Manifest that strength. Take your stand in that field of battle and let the Lord flow through you. And not only stand, but be a testimony to others. Let's pray.